0: Good morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 21. It's going to be our text for today, 2 Samuel chapter 21. Uh, If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find that on page 255. Uh, It's great to be with you all, and I I do want to extend a very special welcome to all those who are visiting with us for VBS Sunday. Uh, We're so thankful that you chose to be with us this Lord's Day it really is a, a privilege to study God's word and we consider it a great joy to be able to worship in this way. For those of you guys who, who are visiting with us, over the last several months we have been walking through as a church the life of David. And so we started our our study all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 16, where David is anointed by the Lord to uh, to become the king of Israel. And this happened while David was still just a very young boy. And from there we began to look at his journey from shepherd boy to now the king of Israel. Um, and if you are at least a little bit familiar with David, if you're familiar with his story, it can be very tempting to, to think that David, a man who is referred to in Scripture as a man after God's own heart, it can be very tempting to think that that he was this outstanding king with very minimal mess-ups. And while it is true that, you know, David was a good king, that the Lord used in many powerful ways to save the nation of Israel, we also know through our study that David had some major character flaws that scripture does not hide from us. And what becomes clear in the life of David is that he is not the hero of the story. God is. And David's life points us to his greater descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is Christ who is the hero. It is Christ who is the one who lives the perfect life, the the life that David could never have lived, the life that we cannot live. And he has made a way for sinners to be rescued through his atoning death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave three days later. So Jesus is the hero, not us, not David, not you, not me, but Jesus. That's why we sang at VBS throughout the week, and even just a couple of moments ago, Jesus is the only way. And praise the Lord for that, because if our hope was in ourselves, or if our hope was in David or someone else, we would be in very big trouble, because the Bible shows us that everyone has sinned, everyone has fallen short, and as a result of our sin, we have all been separated from God, and are therefore in need of a Savior. And we see that sin is a very big deal that is not to be taken lightly. You know, we take sin lightly to our own destruction. And if you've been with us again through our study, you know that one thing is clear. The Bible does not shy away from the ugliness of sin. And it doesn't shy away from the ugliness of David's sin. You know, we have seen some very graphic accounts here that would not even be allowed to be shown on a movie screen. Now We were at staff meeting just a couple of weeks ago and our music director, Carrie, had mentioned how crazy it would be if you were to make a TV series on the life of David. I mean, this TV series would be worse than the Game of Thrones. I mean, could you imagine seeing the ad for that? The Life of David, the man after God's own heart, rated TVMA for violence, gore, strong language, and explicit sexual content, directed by the Kendrick Brothers from the studio that brought you Facing the Giants and Flywheel. It, was, it would be very clear, this, this would be a very, very graphic uh, show. And that's what we have seen through here. Over the last several chapters, we have seen a very graphic account. Back in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, we see David's sin with Bathsheba. And since that point, we have seen the consequences that have been a result from David's actions. And in chapter 12, verse 10, the prophet Nathan comes to to rebuke David and he tells him that the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised the Lord. And since that point, we have seen this rebuke play out with his family being known really only at this point for their bloodshed. In chapter 15, David's own son Absalom starts a revolt against his father, against King David, in an attempt to overthrow David. And what transpires in this is an awful battle that leaves Absalom dead in a tree and David in great mourning over his son. And there's certainly far more details that we could be talking about, but the point is that things have been spiraling out of control for David. And yet, even as things are seemingly out of control for David, they are not out of control for the Lord. Last week, Pastor Matt preached on Second Samuel chapter 20, which is about the, the rebellion of Sheba and the bloodshed that takes place not only with, with Sheba, but also with Joab and his cousin Amasa as Joab kills his cousin. And in that sermon, Pastor Matt's transformative truth was that human sin produces instability, but God's kingdom never collapses. And what an encouraging thought that is. Sin had caused quite a bit of instability in David's kingdom, but even in the midst of that, God's kingdom remained rock solid. And the confidence of scripture is that God's kingdom will remain that way for all of eternity. A very good kingdom indeed. And now as we come to chapter 21, we see this idea continue to ring true. Dale Davis, in his commentary, titles the last section of 2 Samuel. This would be chapters 21 through 24. He titles it, A Kingdom in God's Hands. And I think that's a very fitting summary. So now as we come to the text, we see that, again, things are still seemingly out of control. But I believe that this chapter shows us five separate things to consider. And the first thing that we see is the beauty of Clarity. So chapter 21 opens by telling us that there was an ongoing famine for 3 years. So go ahead and look at verse 1. Now there was a famine in the days of David for 3 years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the gibeonites to death. It's important to note that these last few chapters of 2nd Samuel are not are actually not in chronological order. And we're given a hint later on in this chapter uh in verse 7 that this famine at least took place uh, after Chapter Nine of Second Samuel, with the inclusion of, of Mephibosheth, so that if you're familiar with that story, that comes in Second Samuel Chapter Nine. So we know that this famine occurred somewhere around uh, after that point, but there's no way to know for sure exactly what point at what point during David's reign that this famine took place. Um, but we are introduced, as, as the chapter opens, we are introduced to this crisis right away. There's a three-year famine that is ongoing, and, and the nature of this famine that we see shows that, that there is clearly something, wrong go, something going wrong here. This is no ordinary famine, if that's even such a thing. However, David is in the dark. He's unsure what's going on. He doesn't know what has caused it. He doesn't know why it's taking place. So, so what does he do? He seeks the face of the Lord. And the Lord answers him, telling him that there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he had killed the Gibeonites. And so in order to fully understand what is going on, we need to know, first of all, who the Gibeonites are. The author actually gives us a hint as to who they are. So look at verse 2. So the king, that's David, called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. So we first learn of the Gibeonites all the way back in the book of Joshua, chapter 9. And in this account, the Gibeonites actually trick the Israelites into thinking that they are a a faraway country, that they don't need to be destroyed because they're they're basically sojourners coming. And through flattery to the Israelites, they actually convince the Israelites not to harm them. And this deception starts because the people of Gibeon had heard about how Israel had easily defeated Jericho, how they had wiped out the, the country, the small nation of Ai, and fearing that Joshua and the Israelites would just come and do the same thing to them, the people of Gibeon create this ruse, and they make Israel swear by oath to the Lord that they will not harm them. So the Israelites go ahead and do that. Uh, the text actually says that they, they do not consult the Lord before doing this, which shows their, their first error. But after Israel realizes that they've been duped, at this point there's, there's nothing they can do, because they have made an oath in Yahweh's name. And so they had no choice but to grant uh, Gibeon immunity. However, the writer adds that somewhere along the way, as king, Saul, in his zeal for Israel, violated Israel's oath, and he attempted to destroy the Gibeonites anyway. And it's important to note that this story of Saul attacking the Gibeonites actually is not in scripture. Um, There is no mention of it in in the account of scripture, so... um, so it's, it's not there, but we do know, based on who Saul is, looking at his character, how he was not, he, he exactly wasn't exactly a, a calm-headed man. He was a pretty hothead. Um, we can very clearly see how, no, we can easily see how his zeal would consume him and, and he would go out and lash out against the Gibeonites. You know, as I thought of it, I was like, you know, I was immediately reminded of when Saul goes to Nob and kills all the priests at Nob. So if he's able to do that, uh, I don't think it's far-fetched to say that he, he attacked the Gibeonites as well. Um, and, and when we first read this, it, it may not seem like this is a, a Big deal. So, what that they broke this oath. But in reality, this is a massive deal because swearing an oath in the name of the Lord and then breaking that oath didn't just give the people a bad reputation, it gave God a bad reputation. So back in those days, an oath between two parties typically involved the killing and severing of an animal. And then after you had killed the animal, after you've severed it, you would lay it on the ground and you'd actually walk through it. You'd actually pass through, through the animal, which essentially said, by doing that, you're essentially saying, if I break my covenant with you, let me become like this animal. Let me be cursed, would be another way to put it. And so you can see the weight that oaths had and that oaths should have. And so then when you tacked God's name onto it, it essentially said that God could not be trusted and that his name doesn't, doesn't guarantee anything, which if you're familiar with scripture at all, you know that nothing could be further from the truth. But Saul has, has violated this covenant and he's, he's dragged the Lord's name through the mud and so this issue presented in Second Samuel 21 is not just blood revenge. The Lord's name had been disgraced. And therefore, there was now a curse on Saul and on his descendants. And it may seem harsh to us that the nation should now suffer for the crime of a man that is now dead. But centuries earlier, Israel had sworn an oath to the Gibeonites. And this famine came because that oath had been broken. And we see here the righteous wrath of God. Who does not take sin lightly. As William McDonald points out, time does not dull God's memory or his sense of justice. So we see right off the bat that we are certainly in for a very brutal story. But before we even get into the story, I want us to notice something. In the midst of this story and how we can see right, right from the jump that we are going to see the wrath of God in this account, it's going to be a brutal story. Can you also see, did you also catch the unlimited mercy of the Lord? God does not keep David in the dark. We read that David seeks the face of the Lord, and what happens after David seeks the Lord? The Lord answers him. The Lord is not cruel with David. He does not keep David in the dark. He doesn't leave David to figure things out on his own. He plainly tells him what's going on. And my advice to you, my advice to us, is don't skip over this. You know, far too often, myself included, we can be so quick to want to keep reading that we miss the beauty of what is taking place here. We read that, you know, David seeks the Lord, we read the Lord answers him, and then we say, okay, then what? You know, okay, now, now what happens? Where's the application in here? But we need to stop and, and ponder this for a moment, because this is truly amazing, I mean, we serve a God who has made himself known to his people and a God who answers his people. I mean, just think about that for a second. We pray to the God of the universe. The God who said, let there be light, and light exploded onto the scene. The God who created the sun and the moon, the stars, all of the planets. He even created the windpipes that allow us to pray to him in the first place. And he answers us. He hears our prayers and he answers us. He answers a wretched worm such as myself. Nothing more than a flea. And yet he answers us. Throughout many of the Psalms we come across the word Selah. And Selah means to stop and think about what you have just read. To take a moment and and meditate on that truth. And I would encourage us to say law every time we come across a section in scripture where the Lord responds to the prayers of his people. Maybe it'd even be helpful to actually write in the word say law in these moments. You know, David sought the Lord and the Lord answered him. Say law. Moses went up Mount Sinai to talk to God and God spoke to him. Say law. James 1 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. Selah. I mean, don't miss the beauty of this. We serve a God who is kind to us. And when David sought the Lord, the Lord answered, revealing the guilt that needed to be dealt with, which brings us to the second point, the brutality of atonement. So let's go ahead and look at verses 3 through 9. And David said to the Gibeonites, "'What shall I do for you, and how shall I make atonement, that you may bless the heritage of the Lord?' The Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, What do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel. Let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, Armani and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Mirab, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Meholothite. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord." And the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest, at the beginning of barley harvest. And so the problem is is now clear, but what needs to be done? That's David's first question. What can I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? And then after a bit of ambiguity on the part of the Gibeonites, David asks plainly, as they're kind of beating around the bush a little bit, David asks, what shall I do for you? The Gibeonites are, are glad he asked, and they tell David exactly what they're looking for. Verses 5 and 6 they said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us, so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us, so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. So this is a pretty harsh treatment here. Let us hang seven descendants of Saul. It's important to note that the Gibeonites say that this will happen before the Lord. So this was not to be an act of vengeance on the part of the Gibeonites, but rather a judicial act. This was an act very similar to Samuel's dealing with Agag back in 1 Samuel 15, which if you're not familiar with that one, go and read that account where Samuel takes care of of the king of Agag by quite literally hacking him into pieces, the text tells us. And that was a judicial act. He also did that before the Lord. And so essentially he's saying that the Lord would be witness to this, to this act and would, the Gibeonites seemed sure of, he would approve. And so this is what the Gibeonites proposed as atonement for the horrors that Saul had carried out against them. We should also note that this proposal does not come directly from the Lord. And a lot of commentators are actually very torn on this. Some would say that the punishment fit the crime, so to speak, while others say that this was overkill, pun intended. And while there is nothing that explicitly says that that God approved this act, we do see that it it does produce its intended result with the famine ending uh, at the end of verse 14. And how does David respond to this? His response is quite startling. Quite simply, he agrees. And the king said, I will give them. And then in verse 8, David selects the, the candidates. So he, he grabs Armani and Mephibosheth. This is a different Mephibosheth from Jonathan's son. This is this the son, these are the sons of Rispah. And then he takes uh, five. Um, five sons of Mirab, And then after he's gathered them up, he hands them over. And in verse 9, we read that the Gibeonites carry out their gruesome task. And they hang them on the mountain before the Lord, and the seven of them perished together. And if we're being honest with ourselves, you know, this strikes us as a very tough passage to read. And couldn't there have been another way Couldn't there have been a peacemaker that came along who was able to settle this tension without it resulting in the brutal death of seven men? However, from Scripture we get the clear answer, and the clear answer is no. There could not be a clean solution for this. As Dale Davis notes, there are two reasons that a tidy solution was impossible, blood and wrath. So Numbers 35:33 reminds us that blood pollutes the land and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. Saul's cruel treatment of the Gibeonites had polluted the land with their blood, so only the blood of Saul and his descendants could be used to appease. Secondly, as we've already touched on, Saul's offense had violated a covenant oath. In Joshua 9, when they make this covenant, it actually says that Israel had cut a covenant with Gibeon. And that's the Hebrew word, karat. And that's how we know, they cut that covenant, that's how we know that the covenant they used was with the animal, of cutting it open, severing it, and passing through. This was a, a very big deal. And in this covenant, they asked the Lord to deal harshly with them if they ever broke this oath. And so now that the Gibeonites... Now the Gibeonites insist that that since this oath had been broken, since this covenant had been severed, this harshness, this curse must be carried out. And God's wrath stands behind Gibeon's request. The Lord has already mercifully signaled this in the famine. And now the Lord's wrath must be satisfied, or to use another word, the Lord's wrath must be propitiated. The curse of the covenant must be carried out. And again, if we we're being honest with ourselves, this is where the questions really start to fly. I mean, how can, how can the Lord allow this? Does this not contradict the teaching in Deuteronomy 24, 16, fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor children be put to death for their fathers, each is to die for his own sin? Is this justice or is this injustice? So let me attempt to explain why this is in fact justice. I do not think that this is violating Deuteronomy twenty-four sixteen because that was for individual cases. Here, this situation is far broader. Saul did not break this covenant merely as an individual, but rather as the king of Israel. And as king, the people were represented in him. And so because of this, his offense involved Israel in the guilt. The nation suffered as a result because the covenant was made by Israel's leaders on behalf of the whole people. So if the covenant was broken, all of Israel would be liable for it, even if only one man was the primary instigator. And again, as I was thinking about it, you know, this is similar to the idea of a team that, that wins together also loses together. And for a baseball analogy, a pitcher could have a perfect game, but there could be one error made by another player, and that could mean that he still loses, even though he was not the one who made the mistake. In another sense, if our leaders make a foolish decision, we all bear the brunt of that decision because our leaders represent our nation. And if we're thinking about it, we've all been victims of this at one point or another. However, that still does not answer all of the questions that we may be asking ourselves. This is a tough passage to reconcile with. And as Dale Davis points out, no one can evade the horror of this scene. We can only try to understand what is happening. King Saul has violated the covenant with Gibeon. However, he's now dead, so he cannot personally suffer suffer the curses of breaking the covenant, which then leads to the descendants of Saul having to bear that punishment. And I think it's also worthwhile to note that the text does not say for a fact or not, but... It is very possible that these descendants very well may have had a role in Saul breaking the oath in the first place. If you remember what God said, he said that there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house. However, to be fair, the text does not answer that one way or another, does not explicitly say that, so that is kind of up for for speculation. But having said all this and explaining as much as I can, as much as the commentaries, as much as commentators would try and explain, questions still linger. And many of us simply stand shocked at the horror of this episode. And may I suggest that perhaps that is the point. We should be shocked at this. The text shows us that atonement is horrible, that atonement is brutal, and it is gory. And when I speak of atonement, I'm talking about the act of being reconciled, of being made right with the Lord. In the sacrificial system, animal sacrifices were used to make atonement for sins. And it was messy business. And atonement is never nice. It is always messy. And we need to recognize this. We need to see atonement not as simply a doctrine to study or a concept to be analyzed, but as the messy act that it is. This has always been the testimony of Scripture. From animal sacrifices all the way to the cross of Calvary, God has always said that atonement is nasty, repulsive, and necessary. Once again, Dale Davis provides some much-needed insight. Christians must beware of becoming too refined, longing for a kinder, gentler faith. If we've grown too used to Golgotha, perhaps Gibeah can shock us back into truth. Atonement is a drippy, bloody, smelly business. The stench of death hangs heavy wherever the wrath of God has been quenched. Atonement is messy because sin is messy and sin must be dealt with. This is why the transformative truth for this message is a direct quote from Hebrews 9.22. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And this can, of course applied to 2 Samuel 21, but this is applied in a much greater sense to Christ's work on the cross when Jesus shed his blood to pay the penalty for our sins so that we could be reconciled to him. And I love this quote by Charles Stimeon who connects the two accounts so beautifully. It's a bit longer, but I do think it is worthwhile. Though we cannot act precisely as David or the Gibeonites did, we may both nationally and individually put away the evils that have displeased our God. The blood of Saul's sons was considered by God as an atonement for the sin that Saul had committed. How much more then will God accept in our behalf the blood of his own son, who was sent into the world for the express purpose that he might expiate our guilt and procure for us reconciliation with our offended God? End quote. As we continue in the narrative, we would... Be remiss if we skipped over verse 7, which shows us the blessing of covenant. And so in verse 7 we read, But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. So verse 7 appears almost like an aside. David is tasked with handing over these seven descendants of Saul to the Gibeonites, but in the midst of it all, the writer assures us that Mephibosheth was spared. This oath that is mentioned goes back to 1 Samuel 20, where David and Jonathan make a covenant with one another to show steadfast love to their households. And if you're familiar with the story of Mephibosheth, you know that David honors that covenant back in chapter 9 of 2 Samuel. And as an aside, I just have to tell you how much I love Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is a beautiful picture of loyalty. Now, he was lame in both his feet, crippled in both of his feet, but he was as loyal as the day is long. <laughs> a couple weeks ago, when Pastor was preaching on Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel chapter 19, I actually whispered to my wife, Kiera, and said uh, that I wanted to name him our next son, Mephibosheth. Um, And to that, I got a very hearty and a very firm no um, in response. (laughs) But I do have to agree. I mean, Mephibosheth Smith doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. Um, But that does not change my love for him. Uh, And we see that Mephibosheth is not the only one who is loyal. We see that David shows his loyalty as well. David is faithful to honor the covenant And we see that faithfulness continue here as David pulls back Mephibosheth, excludes him from being one of the ones who would be executed for the Gibeonites. However, in spite of its placement in the narrative, it really does appear as almost like an an aside. Um, It kind of disrupts the flow of the passage. It is clear that verse 7 is very important for the writer. He means to show this as a contrast. He specifically mentions that David and Jonathan had made an oath to the Lord as well. And while Saul had broken his oath with the Gibeonites, David had stayed true to his oath with Jonathan. Whereas Saul is portrayed in these verses as the covenant breaker, we see David as the covenant keeper. And though this passage places a major emphasis on an instance of covenant breaking and its tragic fallout, we also see a beautiful picture of covenant keeping, as if to say that there is a king who does keep covenant. Mephibosheth was liable to unimaginable suffering, but David had made a commitment to protect him. David's covenant had given security to Mephibosheth. And yet in this picture we see David's commitment point beyond itself to David's greater descendant who has promised that he will not lose one of those who his father has given to him as we see in John 6:39 and who promises that no one will be able to snatch them out of his hand as John 10:28 reassures us. David had committed himself to Mephibosheth's safety, Christ has committed himself to his children's safety. And as we come back to this account, we pick things up in verse 10, where we come across a scene that can only be described as sorrowful. So look at verses 10 through 14 as we consider the pathos of love. Then Rispa, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. When David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Aa, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them, on the day the Philistines killed Saul on Gilboa. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan. And they gathered the bones of those who were hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin in Zila, in the tomb of Kish his father. And they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for land. So at this point, the Gibeonites have now carried out their work. The executions are final. With all of this taking place at the beginning of what would normally be barley harvest, so this would most likely be in the middle to end of April. And then we are introduced to Rispa, the, the mother of uh, Armani and Mephibosheth. We're introduced to her for a second time. And this scene that we encounter is both heartbreaking and gut-wrenching. As one commentator notes, the horror of what Rizpah did defies description. And the narrator does not describe it either. So Rizpah comes to the place where the seven sons have been executed, bringing with her sackcloth. And what does she do? She camps out there, and she protects the bodies from being consumed by vultures or other creatures. She acts out of motherly love as well as loyalty toward Saul's family. She could not prevent the, ex- the executions or the exposure, but she will do whatever she can And she protects them, day in, day out, week in, week out. She did whatever she could to prevent the bodies from being further desecrated. John Woodhouse comments, Rispa's devotion magnifies the horror of the story if we can cope with allowing our imaginations to dwell on what she did. Another commentator echoes this sentiment, saying, the moment we allow our imagination to dwell on the details of her situation, we recoil. I mean, just put yourself in her shoes for just a moment. I mean, every single day she's out there being exposed once again to the death of her sons. And as the bodies begin to decay, as the smell begins to get worse and worse, she remains sitting there shielding the bodies from any predators or vultures. I mean, there really is no way to get around it. This is a terrible scene. And the text doesn't tell us how long this goes. We are unsure how long Rizpah continued with this. But eventually we see that the day came when rain fell upon them from the heavens, which signaled the end of the famine on the land and also signaled the end of the wrath of the Lord on the land. And at some point along the way as Rizpah's doing this, David hears of what Rizpah is doing. And apparently moved by this, David, as an act of tribute, gathers the bones of Saul and Jonathan from Jabesh Gilead, along with those that Rizpah had protected, and he gives them all a proper burial. So the compassion and dignity displayed by Rizpah and then David, in their different ways, make a very stark contrast to the violence and the horror that we've been accustomed to in this chapter. This episode now concludes with a ray of hope in verse 14. After that, God responded to the plea for land. This shows us that the death of Saul's sons was not the requirement. The progression of the text seems to make it clear that the Lord did not answer the prayer for the land until after David had shown compassion and honor towards Saul, Jonathan, and the seven who had been executed. Don't miss that. God answered the prayer for the land when and how he chose to do so, not because of something that King David did. David alone could not deal with the problem of God's wrath. He was inadequate to do so. And the question now becomes, what should our reaction be to this section? Again, another horrifying section. I think the impulse can be to skip over this in search of the application. How can we, you know, how can we be like Rizpah or, or whatever it is? But I think the writer includes this story about Rizpah because he wants to make us solemn. He wants us to feel the sadness in this narrative and not skip over it. I mean, have you ever had those moments, those moments where you just want to be sad, where you want to be solemn and quiet? I can think of times often where I'm in deep in worship or deep in meditation over the Lord and I'm experiencing a conviction or a solemn spirit about the weightiness of Scripture, about the weightiness of my sin And in those moments, the last thing I want to do is have a conversation with someone or talk about, you know, what's for lunch or what are we doing later today? And this is a bit different, but I I remember a couple years ago when my grandfather passed away and as we sat there in the final moments before he would be buried, I went up and I just stared at the casket. And there was an overwhelming sadness and I just wanted to sit there quiet and solemn as I thought about my grandfather. And I think that that is the point of this account. The writer wants us to see the sadness because there is a certain goodness in sadness. Here is a scene of gut-wrenching misery and the writer fills our senses with it. It's as if the writer is saying, look what comes from covenant breaking. Look at the destruction that is a result of sin. That's another main theme of this chapter, centering on the abiding consequences of sin, on the long-lasting consequences of sin. Consider the destruction that results from the sins of Saul as well as David. Though David's sins aren't highlighted in this chapter, if you've been with us in our study, you know that David's sins has had some serious repercussions as well. So consider these, these pictures and let that be a warning to you. We never sin in a vacuum. Our actions do impact others, and our sin always takes us farther than we want to go. It always keeps us longer than we want to stay. Heath Thomas reminds us, the fallout of sin is like that of a nuclear disaster. Its impact is immeasurable. And it would do us good to consider these truths. Consider what Psalm 90.11 says, who considers the power of your anger? Who considers your fury in the way you ought to be feared? Whoever stops to consider the wrath of God, the psalm answers nearly no one. But our writer says, you should. As one author put it, stay at Gibeah. Let it sink into your pores. Share the tragedy. It will do you good. As we come to our last section, we see the blissfulness of security. So let's go ahead and look at verses 15 through 22. There was war again between the Philistines and Israel, and David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines, and David grew weary. And Ishbi Benab, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze and who was armed with a new sword, fought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, you shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. After this, there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibachi the Hushathite struck down Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giants. And there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. And Elhanan, the son of Jari Oregim, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath the Gittite. The shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was again war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature, who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number. And he also was descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. These four were descended from the giants in Gath and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. So in this section, we see that the Philistine problem has shown itself once again in David's reign. In verse 16, we read that one of these descendants, Ishbi benob looks to seize his opportunity to kill a very weary David. However, Abishai comes to the rescue and protects his king. We've heard quite a bit about Abishai at this point a man who is very quick to use the sword to solve any problems he has, much like his brother Joab. And as I think of Joab, as I think of Abishai, and even the late Asahel, I think that these sons of Zeruiah were the definition of people you loved to have on your team because you would have hated to have to go against them. And we see in verse 17 that Abishai kills this giant, Ishbai benab seemingly pretty easily. And the reason I titled this section, The blissfulness of security is not necessarily because of what David was feeling at this moment. Far from it. I mean, this is a pretty scary scene with four giants that are actually descendants from Goliath himself. In fact... Uh, some commentators point out that the reason going all the way back to 1 Samuel 17, which is the battle with David and Goliath, the reason David grabs five stones is not because he was afraid he was going to miss, but actually because he knew Goliath had four other brothers. So if he took down Goliath and four more charge him, he had what he needed to take them out as well. Um, But we know that that these are very imposing opponents. And so this is a very scary scene, so that's not why I've titled it The Blissfulness of Security. But the reason it is titled that is because as we look at the account, we do see the blissfulness that security brings. We know through Scripture, we know that God has promised to preserve the Davidic line, that he has promised to bring a deliverer through David who will be the long-awaited Messiah. And so we know that this will not be the end of the story. There's ultimate security found in God's promises and God's preservation. And there's countless examples of God preserving his people in Scripture. Just to name a few, there would have never been a covenant seed if, if Isaac had been killed by his father back in Genesis chapter 22. Israel would have never been freed from Egypt if Moses didn't survive as a baby. And Israel would have plummeted into disaster if Ishbai Benob succeeded in his mission in killing David. And none of God's flock would have had salvation had not the real king of the Jews saved the Savior from the clutches of Herod. And believers in Christ can rest knowing that we do have ultimate security. We know that God has promised never to leave us, never to forsake us, and he has promised, as we mentioned earlier, that he will not lose any who are his. We can take that to the bank. There is blissfulness in security. And as the accounts of the giants continue, we encounter the next giant, Saph, who is killed promptly by Sibekai. And Sibekai is described as one of David's mighty men in 1 Chronicles chapter 11. And he's also a commander of one of David's military divisions. And he takes out, takes out Saph. And then we get to the next giant. We read that there's another giant who too meets his end by a man named Elhanan, the son of Jari Oregim. And this snapshot is very similar to the one we just saw with Saph, Uh, Another victory in David's name over a formidable foe. And actually, David isn't mentioned in either of those two accounts. And now the writer gives particular attention to this last episode in verse 20. This giant, he actually doesn't have a name, but he is described as unusually impressive, saying that he had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. And as I kind of thought about that, I was like, man, this guy has a great party trick. You think if he's got his hands and put his hands behind his back, how many hands, how many fingers am I holding up? Uh, you'd probably stump a lot of people with that one. Um, and he too, as impressive as he is physically, he too makes the foolish decision of taunting Israel. And similar to his brother uh, Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, who also taunted and derided Israel day in and day out, he meets a similar end. And as I was thinking about it, I was like, I couldn't think of any other word but, but to call him a bozo. This, this bozo taunted Israel, meaning just he didn't learn his lesson by looking at his brother, by seeing his brother, who taunted Israel, meaning that he didn't just taunt Israel, he taunted Israel's God. And he too, just like his brother, was struck down. And I think the message that we see from these four giants is clear. God will silence his enemies. Those who trash talk the Lord and his people will be silenced. Let that encourage you today. May his lifeless tongue testifies to God's people in Isaiah 54, 17. You shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. I was just talking with a friend literally last night and we were talking about the day that every tongue will confess, every knee will bow and, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Allow that truth to encourage you. The good news of Christ gives us hope to endure suffering today, knowing that it is not the end of the story. If we are in Christ, then we are victors in Christ. Let that be your strength. And if you are not in Christ, know that it's not too late for you. The Bible makes clear that anyone who turns to Christ in faith, recognizing him as Lord and as Savior, will be saved as so we see in Romans ten thirteen, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Throughout this past week with VBS, we were talking about being a keeper of the kingdom, belonging to God's good kingdom. And the message of scripture is that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be a part, will be saved, will become a part of God's good kingdom. Through Christ's atoning work, he has made a way for us to experience new life that is found only in him. So if you are a believer, let that encourage you. And if you are here and and you don't know Christ, let the truths that you have heard this morning draw you to the throne of grace, where you can receive mercy and grace today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the confidence that your word brings to us. We praise you for your atoning work on the cross. Lord, as we've just looked at, we know that atonement is messy business, and yet we also know that it is completely necessary for salvation as we are reminded in Hebrews 9.22. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Lord, I pray that you would encourage us with that truth today, knowing that there was a shedding of blood, but it wasn't ours. Thank you, Jesus, for glorifying your holy name through your love for your children, which drove you to the cross. May we live our lives in light of what we have heard today. For it is in your name we pray. Amen.